Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, October 19th, 2021 Highlights Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lean, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know what's new in the journal over the last two weeks. In the first article I'll highlight, researchers from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles assessed immune response after SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccination in 582 adults with inflammatory bowel disease receiving various medication regimens including anti-integrin therapy, anti-interleukin therapy, immunomodulator monotherapy, anti-tumor necrosis factor monotherapy, Janus kinase inhibition, anti-tumor necrosis factor therapy combined with immunomodulators, and systemic corticosteroids. They found that 99% of participants had detectable antibodies two weeks after vaccination, regardless of medication regimen. In addition, quantitative levels peaked at week two and decreased across all groups over subsequent time points. Mean quantitative levels at eight weeks were the highest in the no immunosuppression group, as well as among those treated with anti-integrin and anti-interleukin therapy, and lowest among those treated with anti-tumor necrosis factor combination therapy or corticosteroids. However, the study was not powered to assess differences across medication subgroups. The next article addresses another GI topic, type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis. Type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis is characterized histologically by a neutrophilic infiltrate organized in granulocytic epithelial lesions. Corticosteroids are used to induce remission, and azathioprine is commonly used as maintenance therapy. A case report published on annals.org on October 12th reports successful treatment of type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis with colchicine in two patients who failed to respond to conventional treatment. These cases appear to be the first cases of recurrent type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis successfully treated with colchicine. Colchicine was well tolerated and induced rapid resolution of abdominal pain and serologic and radiologic findings. On the basis of the author's experience with these two patients, they believe that colchicine is a promising treatment and encourage formal clinical studies to determine whether the preliminary findings can be confirmed. Next is an in-the-clinic review on gonorrhea and chlamydia. The rates of these sexually transmitted infections have risen to record high levels in the United States over the past decade. Because these infections are often asymptomatic, effective clinical management relies on screening of asymptomatic patients, particularly women younger than 25 years of age, and men who have sex with men. If undetected and untreated, gonorrhea and chlamydia can lead to infertility, ectopic pregnancy, and chronic pelvic pain, and can facilitate HIV acquisition and transmission. This practical review is intended to help primary care providers be aware of recent changes and recommended treatments for both infections. Go to annals.org to read the review, access patient information resources, and take a brief quiz to earn CME and MOC credit. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease remains a leading cause of death. Reducing disease risk through primary prevention strategies has been shown to be effective. However, the role of aspirin in primary prevention remains unclear. In 2016, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force addressed the issue by determining the risk level at which prophylactic aspirin provides more benefit than harm, recommending aspirin up with, for patients with a risk cut point above 10%. In 2019, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association 
recommended that clinicians consider low-dose aspirin in the primary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease for select adults age 40 to 70 years at higher cardiovascular risk, but not at increased risk for bleeding. And just a few days before I'm recording this podcast, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force issued new recommendations that discouraged initiating aspirin for primary prevention, creating confusion about what to do for the many persons who are already taking it for that purpose. In the most recent Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds, experts discuss how to apply the somewhat confusing recommendations to a particular patient while addressing what is the best way to estimate the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and what is the role, if any, of the coronary calcium score? At what risk thresholds of benefits and harms would you recommend aspirin for primary prevention? And how do you help a patient come to a decision about starting or stopping aspirin? The article is accompanied by a video of the Grand Round session at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. Gastrointestinal bleeding rates for direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, and warfarin have been extensively compared. However, population-based studies comparing bleeding rates among different DOACs are limited. To help fill this gap, authors of the next article conducted a nationwide population-based cohort study in Iceland examining rates of the gastrointestinal bleeding in new users of apixaban, dabigatran, and rivaroxaban from 2014 through 2019. They found that new users of rivaroxaban had higher overall rates of gastrointestinal bleeding and major gastrointestinal bleeding compared with the Pixaban. Rivaroxaban also had higher bleeding rates than dabigatran with similar point estimates, although the confidence intervals were wider and included the possibility of a null effect. When only patients with atrial fibrillation were included, rivaroxaban was associated with higher rates of overall gastrointestinal bleeding than both apixaban or dabigatran. The authors conclude that rivaroxaban was associated with higher gastrointestinal bleeding rates than apixaban and dabigatran, regardless of treatment indication. On October 8th, Annals and the American College of Physicians hosted a virtual COVID-19 forum where expert panelists discussed the immunology of SARS-CoV-2 and the clinical and public health implications of the immune behavior of this virus, particularly with regard to vaccination. This forum was the sixth in a series of forums hosted by Annals and ACP over the past year. The panelists for this most recent forum included Dr. John Muscola, Director of the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, and Dr. Camille Cotton, Clinical Director of Transplant and Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital, Annals Deputy Editor and Infectious Disease Expert, Dr. Deborah Cotton, moderated the discussion. Despite all we've learned in a short time, questions remain about SARS-CoV-2 and the spread of misinformation is rampant. The foreman provided a primer on the immune behavior of the virus and also on the effectiveness of vaccination of immunocompromised persons, along with vaccination of those with prior COVID infection. Panelists addressed a variety of questions submitted by people when they registered for the forum including questions about measuring antibody levels to guide vaccination and other behaviors ranging from masking and social distancing to the use of booster vaccines. The full recordings of this and prior programs are available on annals.org. Go to the multimedia link at the top of the homepage to access the forums. If you listen to the forum and complete a very short quiz, you can earn CME and MOC credit. Next is a very interesting modeling study that suggests that beginning mammography screening every other year at age 40 in black women 
could substantially decrease breast cancer deaths in this population while maintaining the same level of benefit and harm as seen for white women who are screened from ages 50 to 74. Mammography screening recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommend biennial screening for all women beginning at age 50, regardless of race. Yet black women have higher rates of aggressive cancers at younger ages than white women, and outcomes tend to be worse for black than for white women. The reasons for these differences are uncertain and may include factors ranging from biological differences to differences in access to and uptake of effective therapies. Researchers from the National Cancer Institute-funded Cancer Intervention and Surveillance Modeling Network, known as CISNET, developed a model that projected the lifetime impact of digital mammography screening under different starting ages and screening intervals for women born in the U.S. in 1980. The model compared benefits of screening, the number of life years gained by early detection, breast cancer deaths averted, and mortality reduction, to potential harms, including false positives and radiation exposure. The model used data about breast density, distribution of breast cancer molecular subtypes, age and stage at which treatment is initiated, and non-breast cancer mortality in black and white women when evaluating a range of screening strategies. They considered real-world treatment effectiveness based on factors such as access to medication, delays in treatment, dose reductions, and discontinuation of therapy. The researchers found that breast cancer deaths could be cut dramatically by screening black women 10 years earlier than white women. The author of an accompanying editorial suggests that classification of race may oversimplify the issue, as crude race categories used in healthcare may cause more harm than just the proximal harms outlined in the modeling study. This study demonstrates, though, that consideration of race could reduce racial disparities in breast cancer outcomes and improve health equity. Next is an article reporting a large cohort study that found that participation in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, significantly reduces healthcare use and costs among older adults, but participation is unfortunately low. SNAP is a federal program in the U.S. aimed at reducing food insecurity by providing low-income families and individuals with a monthly benefit to buy the food they need for good health. Older adults duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid have particularly high food insecurity prevalence and healthcare use. Because eligibility requirements are similar, most persons who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid are also eligible for SNAP. However, many persons who are eligible for SNAP do not choose to enroll. Researchers from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill studied administrative records from North Carolina for non-SNAP participating adults older than 65 years who were enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid and therefore likely to be eligible for SNAP to compare healthcare utilization and costs for those who did and did not subsequently enroll in SNAP. Compared with those who did not enroll in SNAP, recipients of SNAP had fewer hospitalizations, emergency department visits, and long-term care admissions over 22 months of follow-up. Enrollment in SNAP was also associated with approximately 2,360 lower annual Medicaid spending per person. This reduction in healthcare costs is significant and exceeds the average annual SNAP benefit levels for seniors of $1,488. According to the author of an accompanying editorial, the study provides further evidence that SNAP is medicine and also shows that enrolling Medicare beneficiaries in SNAP actually saves the government money, and the editorialist proposes that given the benefits of the program, 
SNAP enrollment should be automatic and considered a universal basic income for those who are eligible. Among other efforts to address firearm-related violence, 19 states and the District of Columbia now allow courts to issue extreme risk protection orders, laws that permit family members, police, and in some jurisdictions, physicians and other clinicians to petition courts to remove firearms from persons who pose an imminent danger to themselves or others. The orders last up to one year with opportunities for extension and appeal. Next is a commentary that provides practical guidance on the current scope of physician responsibilities within extreme risk protection order laws and discusses procedural steps for executing these duties. The authors outline the physician role as a petitioner when the physician believes the patient is at risk, an evaluator or witness when the courts become involved. The authors also discuss liability and ethical concerns that may arise as a result of physician involvement. Many behaviors, both favorable and unfavorable, have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, SARS-CoV-2 may be associated with changes in smoking behaviors. Next is a brief research report that estimates changes in cigarette sales in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic after accounting for the long-term declining trends in cigarette consumption. In brief, the study documents a surge in cigarette sales during COVID-19. The researchers estimated an increase of about 0.34 packs per month per capita, corresponding to about a 14.1 increase above the expected cigarette sales. Concerns exist regarding the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines against immune escape by viral variants of concern with Delta currently being the most common worldwide and with fully vaccinated individuals harboring infectious viral loads and nasopharyngeal swabs, reports to date have assessed the prevalence of vaccine breakthrough infection among healthcare workers, mostly based on spontaneous self-reporting by symptomatic workers, hence missing asymptomatic cases, which could nevertheless transmit the infection. Once a healthcare worker is identified to be positive for SARS-CoV-2, most countries ask for a 14-day quarantine or two consecutive follow-ups performed after at least 10 days before the healthcare worker is admitted back to the workplace. Such mandatory quarantines can lead to large healthcare worker shortages and cause health crises within hospitals. The next article reports a study conducted in Lombardy, Italy, that involves systematic surveillance of 2,397 healthcare workers who were fully vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine in February of 2021. Between March 15th and August 17th, 2021, the researchers identified 33 positive cases as part of the surveillance program. 17 of 789, or 2.1% within the high-risk group, tested every three weeks, and 16 of 1,387, or 1.1%, in the moderate-risk group who were tested every four weeks. None of these cases ever developed symptoms, and none had immune deficiency or significant comorbidities. All 33 asymptomatic cases tested negative the day after the initial positive test, and all were confirmed negative on the third nasopharyngeal swab. The authors say that their findings suggest regular testing of asymptomatic vaccinated healthcare workers who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 and may preclude the need for long quarantines, but these findings require confirmation in larger studies. Surveillance programs aimed at capturing all vaccine breakthrough infections should include frequent testing. Additional new material includes three on being a doctor essays and two poems. There's also the most recent episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guys address a case of green urine reprising one of their first episodes, 
and Annals on Call features a conversation about the care of patients with vaso-occlusive crisis secondary to sickle cell disease. There is also an Annals for Hospitals commentary on hospital discharges against medical advice. That brings me to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new material I've highlighted here. Take care and stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next Annals Highlights podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.